Hello you, welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. We are so glad you're here. Today we're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. And we'll be joined by Amanda Smith, who will talk about all things Indiana Jones with us. We cover so much ground in this episode. I am so happy you're here and I can't wait to share it with you. But first, I want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or at Apple Podcast subscriptions. You get bonus episodes and as a result, you help pay for this show. Over 90% of our budget comes from you know crowdfunding in that way or these kinds of subscriptions. And so we appreciate that you help make this possible. And our staff is comprised entirely of artists, journalists, thinky weirdos, etc. And so you're funding that economy by supporting us. And we appreciate that. We have a new bonus episode coming out very soon. It's about grief. A uh, long conversation between Sarah and me about grief, which is a thing that we talk about quite Quite a bit in a lighthearted way, I assure, although it gets a little heavy too, because it's about grief. Uh, we also have an appearance by Harmony Colangelo in this episode. So we're talking about the loss of a parent. We're talking about the big feelings that come along with that. And we're talking about sleepaway camp. <laughs> You Are Good is also made possible with support that comes from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And finally, we have a playlist that accompanies each of our episodes. The playlist is inspired by the conversation as much as it's inspired by the movie itself. Look for that in the show notes. We hear you like it. How are you doing out there, everybody? How's it going in your world? Let us know on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. We love hearing from you. We're on Discord as well. Uh, link in the link tree uh, related on any of our social yeah, what's going on out there? Sarah and I have been traveling. We're in Los Angeles, California. We saw our great friend Jamie Loftus on a number of occasions, which was wonderful. We saw her show uh, that envisions her being married to Joey Chestnut or once having been married to Joey Chestnut. Uh, it was really awesome to spend so much time with Jamie, who we adore. And speaking of Harmony Colangelo, we spent great time with Harmony and BJ Colangelo of This Ends at Prom, who we adore. These are our friends. We we got into podcasting to maintain a friendship with each other, Sarah and me, and uh, we ended up having this whole ecosystem of friends who make beautiful work, and we cannot be more happy about that. So thanks for helping make that happen, friend. It's, it's mind-blowing that we get to do this. So... Today, we talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark. We talk about it with Amanda Smith, a perfect summer movie, a very flawed <laughs> movie for a number of reasons. We talk about this movie with love. We talk about this movie with wonder. We talk about this movie very critically because there are a number of issues that uh, uh, should be discussed. Super quick note to let you know, an earlier edit of this conversation had me quickly in passing reference Sir Ben Kingsley's portrayal of Gandhi as an incident of uh, on-screen brown face that of course is not true. It was one of those things I said out loud, looked up immediately after, realized how wrong I was, and then did not catch it in the edit. I'm sorry for that. Thank you to everyone who brought it to our attention. Thank you for your grace and your generosity. Sir Ben Kingsley, of course, was born Krishna Pandit Banji. His father was an 
Gandhi and Gujarati, as was Gandhi. So I got that wrong. Thank you again to everyone who brought it to our attention. And I'm sorry uh, to you if we caught you off guard. I'm sorry to you, Sir Ben Kingsley. Thank you all for listening to the show. This episode is brought to you by Come As You Are, the world's only worker co-op sex shop. They heard that we were looking for sponsors that align with our interests and values, et cetera. And they were like, we are those people. They are anti-capitalist, no commission, no bosses to hoard profits. They have no profit incentives so they can afford to be honest about sex products. They run North America's only sex toy recycling program. What are you going to do with that sex toy that's not working anymore? You're not going to put in a landfill, are you? No. Come as you are is going to help you figure out what to do with that. They only sell things that are actually good and not harmful. Who wants to spend all day talking about bad sex toys? Uh, They're founded and run by queer and genderqueer people. They were voted Toronto's best sex shop by Now Magazine consistently for decades. Come as you are. They made this episode possible and we appreciate them so much. If you want a deal, you can get 20% off your first order with the coupon code YOURGOOD. That's all you need. Coupon code, you are good, all one word. Come as you are, you get 20% off. Thank you. Thank you, come as you are, we appreciate you. All right, back to the whips. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Is a, that's a nice uh, that's a nice whip you have there. A nice mug? Whip, whip. Whip, like a, whip. A traveling device from the 30s. Oh my, yes, I see. I was, Alex, <laughs> I am 78 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we are joined by a wonderful and special guest today to talk about this, who we've been in talks about having on this show for a while. I'm very excited that it's happening right now. Who goes there, special guest? Hi, I'm Amanda Smith. You know how long we've been we've been talking about this since the show was Why Our Dads? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the first movie that we humored touching, which made so much sense in the Wire Dads times, and it would make sense now because it's a great movie, is Last Crusade. Yeah. Because it's a big fighting with your dad movie. Yeah, it's, it's fighting with your dad and fighting with, you know, the big dad upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> and then we tried to do Now and Then, and we were cursed a handful of times. And mm-hmm. um, now we're here. Now we're going to crack open the Ark of the Covenant like a yeah. cold brewski. Yeah. And I don't think anything's going to happen bad this time. This movie's full of curses. It's a, it's rich in curses, so we'll see. We're tempting fate. Well, I think we're safe because we don't, as far as I know, have any Nazis, which tends no. to be the thing that the Ark dislikes. We don't have any Nazis. Confirmed. What if there's, because I'm in Portland, so you never know, <laughs> what if there's a Nazi walking down the street while we're recording this and he's just like, ah, my heart's stopping. That would be fun. Yeah, my face turned into Barbasol. <laughs> melting off. I mean, I personally would not have a complaint with that. I was thinking while watching this, I was like, you know what I want? I want <laughs> like a YouTube video that's like three hours long and it's like ASMR, Indiana Jones fighting Nazis. And you probably achieve that by having a guy like stabbing melons and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> not to get ahead of ourselves, but like I had forgotten how incredibly jazzed he looks when he's just like throwing Nazis off of him for five whole minutes in the Jeep. Yeah. Yeah. Amanda, before we jump off and get into this, because we're dangerously close. Amanda, tell us about you before we get into the uh, the thick of it. Okay. Um, so I am a writer, casual gentleman scientist and uh, prolific Twitterer. And I am the co-host of a podcast called Disaster Girls, where we do a deep dives every week on different disaster movies, big, small, made for TV. We recently banned anything featuring Dean Cain going forward. Oh, 
It's a good choice. Sarah, tell us about what the fuck this movie is. I was thinking last night, because you told part of the Charlie lore about your dad seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark and being very angry about it. And I was trying to think of like, what would prepare you for this in 1981? Or like, how did they market it? How was, because I grew up with this movie. I saw it for the first time when I was like 11, which I think is kind of the age that it's made for. Yeah. It knocked my socks off. I was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. It has everything. It has action. It has stunts. It has punching Nazis with really juicy sound effects. It has jumping from a horse to a car. It has pirates. It has really gory moments and like scary mummy moments. And I was so happy about it. And I also was just like, oh, my God, I found my calling. And it's to be an academic who goes and has adventures in their free time. (laughs) And the way to do that is just to be a journalist, it turns out. So you should do that if you want to do that. And also, I loved it also used the knowledge that I think a lot of children have from kind of like basic Bible stuff of like, don't look directly at God. Remember when Moses didn't do that? Yep, don't do it. And you got to feel really smart because none of the Nazis read even a tiny bit of the Bible. Just none. (laughs) They just wanted the power, but they did not understand the context. Yeah. So it's funny because when I watch this movie now, I like watch it as my 11 year old self. And now I'm also having the experience of watching it as like a somewhat sensible adult woman and imagining what it would be like to see it at this age when it came out. And like, I would have lots of other thoughts about it. And that's what we're going to talk about (laughs) today. But to tell you the story of it, if you haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'm very excited for you that you got to see it. But the premise, this is the first of the original trilogy of Indiana Jones movies that spanned the 80s and got us through. We started strong. The middle was horrible. And we finished strong. (laughs) And Indiana Jones, we open seeing him on an adventure where he steals a golden idol from a booby-trapped temple in the island of Kauai. He escapes and escapes a big rolling boulder and then has it stolen from him by the French archaeologist slash Nazi collaborator René Belloc, who says, once again, Dr. Jones, we see there is nothing you can find that I cannot take away or something like that. Belloc has gotten the locals on his side. I don't know where this is supposed to be, but they're sort of a 1980s American understanding of like Brazilian rainforest guys. And so Belloc wins this one. Indy flies away in a float plane. And then we get to our main adventure, which is that Indy is teaching his one class that he does every three months. (laughs) And then a couple of government guys who have sort of like Martin Mull and Mr. Hodges from the Torkelson's energy. (laughs) Different guys, different energies. (laughs) And they're like, okay, the Nazis are collecting all these religious artifacts. They're obsessed with the occult, which as you were pointing out when we were watching this is true. They were. And... Hitler wants the Ark of the Covenant. So, or actually they're like, we found these words and we don't know what they mean because we don't know anything. And then he's like, ah, they're digging for the Ark of the Covenant. And so basically the U.S. government sends him to try and rescue the Ark of the Covenant back from the Nazis who are working with his old nemesis, Belloc. And 
In order to get there, he has to go to Tibet to reconnect with Marion Ravenwood, the daughter of his mentor, who he had an affair with when she was, in her words, a child. So like, was she 16? Was she 13? We don't know. Well, we we know based on conversations they had while making this movie that she was 12. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh. Like, I guess these surface every handful of years is the conversations they were having about sort of like how it was going to go or whatever. But even with that, I was like, even with that out of the picture, I was surprised watching this again at how unresolved and uncaveated mm-hmm. our introduction to these two is, which is she's like, I haven't seen you in 10 years. You ruined my life. I was a child. And I was like, oh, cool. Maybe we'll get some more information to ingratiate us to this guy. Nope. You just smile. Miles a lot. He's a he's a hunk. Well, he like begrudgingly says he's sorry, and then she brings it up again, and he's like, I, "How many times do I have to apologize?" It's like I don't know, twice. <laughs> <laughs> and then she says that thing where it's like you had to do a lot to alienate my father or something like that, and it's like, nah, it mm-hmm. feels like the thing that he did. This is like the one thing that he did feels enough. That's big. It's a big one. Mm-hmm. Ah, so that's Marion. And <laughs> the movie just moves on from this scene as they do in 80s movies. They're just like, yeah, so that's the backstory. And um, people don't have to deal with their trauma. It's fine. We've looked into it and it's fine. And basically what follows is the movie and is their rip roaring adventure trying to first beat the Nazis to dig up the Ark of the Covenant and then getting it back from the Nazis, which they failed to do, and ultimately being at the opening of the Ark of the Covenant, which they do on an island in the Mediterranean, I think, for some reason. I forget if there's a justification for that. And all the Nazis get blown up and melted because they dared to look upon the face of God while also murdering his people the whole time, which I don't know. That seems like a bad idea to me. And then it ends with, with Indy and Marion getting a drink in 1936, Washington, D.C., which does not sound fun, while the Ark of the Covenant is placed in a giant warehouse in Burbank. <laughs> <laughs> It's where we keep most relics, actually. Most people don't know that, but we actually, the U.S. government keeps all important relics here in Burbank, just, you know, for props and any other. It makes sense climate-wise, yeah. I was so stressed knowing that all of that important stuff was just in wooden boxes in an environment that was not climate controlled and wouldn't be for years. Like everything just emerges as a pile of mush and mold in the 60s, I'm sure. (laughs) No, it's okay. They relocated all of it to Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, that's the other thing. I was like, totally, (laughs) this scene from Mar-a-Lago. Oh my God, amazing. All right, Sarah, that was a beautiful and succinct description. I did my best. What If the Ark of the Covenant was at Mar-a-Lago, what would Trump use it for? I'm going to say like a buffet table. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. TV stand. Yeah. And he would have no interest in opening it. He wouldn't try to read whatever document you have to read in order to like actually get it to do its tricks. He would purely just have it there as really tacky decoration. That like says everything about him that like he would be saved from it because he's too lazy and uninterested to open it. You know, God, mean guy, (laughs) terrible guy, (laughs) likes me though. (laughs) You'll like it. My son-in-law loves it. Like he's just like a real (laughs) one done connector. Amanda, what's your relationship with this movie? So I, like many movies from the late 70s, 80s, early 90s, it was a huge blind spot in my like cultural knowledge for a long time. 
because I knew just enough about it thanks to all of the references in like pop culture aimed at kids and aimed at millennials at the time. So I never needed to watch it as far as I was concerned until like my 20s. And I finally watched it where it was one of those, yeah, I'll get around to it things. And then I was like, why have I deprived myself of this for so long? It has everything I like. It has punching Nazis. It has a hot man with questionable morals. <laughs> it's got a kick-ass lead, like secondary lead in a woman. It's got a Nazi monkey. What more could you ask for? Every one of Miriam's outfits is amazing. Yes. I had made the joke last night on Twitter, but nothing that Spielberg or Lucas loves better than a sassy heroine in a white dress with no bra. That's true. <gasps> yeah. I mean, same. Wasn't well, there sorry. a Lucas thing where like Carrie Fisher was like, why don't I have a bra yeah. in this movie? What did he say? Uh, there's no bras in space. <laughs> like, wow. because you don't need it because of because gra- there's no gravity. So you don't need a bra. No, but you ne- you need a I know people know this, but like, look, okay, caveat, (laughs) I have not been to space, but I would imagine that you need a bra even more in space because you've seen what happens to liquids, how there's just these globes of juice floating around. You would just lead with your boobs all the time. It would be distracting to me. It would be honestly dangerous on the space station. Your nipple could just accidentally hit any number of things. (laughs) I feel like George Lucas's understanding of like what a woman would need in space is akin to when NASA scientists ordered like a thousand tampons. I love that story. I love that story so much. For like what, like eight days, right? (laughs) This speaks to a really important point about understanding what this movie is for. I feel like I've understood this movie for the first time watching it this time, which is (laughs) with a bunch of killjoy ladies. Well, no, this is, this is a movie that like, two boys in suspended animation made for their prior boy selves. Yeah. Yeah. And the jury's out as far as I can tell that they ever got beyond their 15th year. I think Steve did. (laughs) Maybe. But yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it speaks to like the whole idea about wanting these like virginal brassy but like damsely ladies in braless outfits like that's a thing that you would cast if you were a 15 year old boy being like this is what i'm into but they just never got beyond it they just are george lucas is still a 15 year old boy oh yeah i would argue that spielberg like and it's part of why storytelling wise he's one of my favorite large directors is because of the fact that yes marion by nature of what the plot requires does spend a great deal of it being in distress, but she's never helpless. No. You know, and there's never a sense that she couldn't hold her own, but there's also never a sense that she's one of those, like, the trope of obstinately difficult, Mm -hmm. needs to be put in her place for her own good kind of characters that we so often see with these, like, no, I can do it myself. And then you're like, no, no, little lady, you actually needed a man all along. Yeah. Maybe not for your mission, but for your heart. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's real compassion toward her and there's a real admiration of her that doesn't, it does cross over a little bit into kind of the idea of like objectification, but it ultimately, he is just as interested in her being a fully formed equal to Indiana in the same way that if you look at like Jurassic Park, Ellie, who Mm -hmm. is ultimately a minor character and again is much younger than Dr. Grant. Ellie is also a fully formed character who isn't the one who gets the arc, but she could have been a lot more helpless than she is. So it's definitely one of those things where this is the best possible version Mm -hmm. of the things that they liked when they were 15. I kind of think of it as like Steven Spielberg made the media that he took in, but he did it through his own better storyteller 
slightly more evolved, you know, perception. It's like a 1970s, 1930s adventure serial in a really interesting way, which is, of course, what Star Wars is. And the thing that I find surprising in these viewings is they kind of see Indy as silly. Like, he's not super serious. There's a number of times that people make jokes about him at his expense. Half of her dialogue is in pointing out his shortcomings in his history, which is great. And, like, there's no... Yeah, I I think that, like, in a really interesting way for a movie that is men making a movie for their childhood selves, there is, like, some interesting level of awareness about being like, this is pretty silly. Like, we're doing a silly thing here. This man is silly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think totally. It's the difference of like why this works and reboots or kind of revisits. Part of why that doesn't work is because there's there's no reverence for him in this. Oh, yeah. Because there shouldn't be. Like, there isn't that sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Look at how significant this character is. There's two ways you can view this movie based on the way that the story structure breaks out in this movie. Because there's kind of two movies are being told. One, if you look at it with including the little prequel part, you get this basically another episode in the adventures of Indiana Jones as a serial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you take that out and you just kind of enter from the beginning of when we meet him as Dr. Jones, then pacing wise, plotting wise, it's actually a different movie. <laughs> and there the character has an arc. <laughs> and so this movie does again, what crystal skull kind of doesn't successfully do, which is that it does to a degree treat this as this is another e- episode in the great adventures of Indiana Jones that you tune into every week. It does truly treat it as that mm. serial. Hmm. But because of that, there's not that same reverence that you get in, the, in later movies because of the fact that it's still the entry point and there wouldn't be that reverence if it were a serial. It would be like, hey, welcome back. Right. You see him every week versus hmm. this is this big the mighty return of Indiana Jones. So I think that that lack of reverence is important to Hmm. like why this movie works, that we see everybody making fun of him. We see them kind of taking the piss out of him a little bit. Aside from his students. (laughs) I would argue are irresponsible with their behavior toward him. I would argue, leave this poor sex pot alone. Yeah. The thing that like fan service ends up getting wrong is it reprojects its assumptions of what the audience wants as text. Mm. Yeah. And like, so you miss all of like the interesting dynamics between Ellie and Alan, because all that they're doing is like, do your catchphrase, worry about your hat. You care about dung. Like that's what they're like. Just check the things. God, that hat thing was the worst. Totally. Check the fucking things off that you do to like reveal to the audience that like their idea of what the characters are is important and valid. And like, that's how we'll serve them. Again, this is a character who I grew up with looking at as like an inherently cool guy. And he is based on like what all the stuff that he does and all the stuff that he pulls off. He's an academic and he sort of goes on adventures, all this stuff. We'll talk about the morals and ethics regarding all that later. But like he's also again, he's he's been the punchline of several people's jokes in this movie in a really fun way. And he's like, he's put upon, and Sarah's recently come into Die Hard, and he's yeah. like put upon in like the John McClane way. Like, there's all these things that are like actually kind of <laughs> relatable about him yeah. and his flaws. And, you know, if you come into it, I think, as a kid, you you see the, the superhero aspect of it, mm-hmm. which is the like, oh my god, he did all these things. He's so cool. He's so witty. When you watch as an adult for the first time, you're like, oh, my God, his back has to hurt so much from crawling through those vents. Yes. Like, you understand the human and the fleshiness of it. Totally. Yes. 
I love the comparison between Indiana Jones and John McClane. I was thinking that during the sequence where basically it's just like they're playing hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant. And so Indy has it like safely on a pirate steamship run by his mutual friend or his friend of a friend, Mr. Katanga. And then the Nazis come and raid it. And then they're like, where's Indy? Where'd Indy go? And he's just like swum over to this like, is it a U-boat? It looks like a (laughs) U-boat. Which is just such a like, yeah, like very big John McClane energy. You just like, you're behaving the way that you would behave if you had extra lives. Totally. Yeah, it just like hits differently when you're an adult with like creaky adult bones and you're like, oh my God, he's going to like, <laughs> even if this all goes well, like he could slip a disc. <laughs> well, and he's and he's like, it also puts into like a really glorious context all of the times he's like kind of smiling to himself. Like to your point, Sarah, when he's like fighting Nazis, he's like always really happy or whatever. But like knowing that his other job is academia, yeah. you're like, well, this makes total sense he's like beats paperwork totally it's yeah it beats office hours yeah it's across the board it beats his day job yes he's smiling to himself but you see him get tired a lot of times in these fights which you Mm -hmm. don't you know there's no it's not the captain america i can do this all day thing when he's got in that brawl right the you know the one old-timey boxer nazi yes oh my god Yeah. (laughs) yeah and he just is so tired and throwing punches and you can see just just like i don't want to be throwing any more punches amen (laughs) where the guy's like so excited and challenging to a fight and he's just like yeah is this momentary like of like oh my god really like another one of these guys one of the things that this movie had me think a lot about especially with regard to like my young relationship with it because amanda to your point like I well, I was familiar with this movie. I watched this movie a lot in the related movies, but also like Muppet Babies was probably my introduction. DuckTales was my introduction. Yeah. Like all these allusions to this, which I only recently learned were allusions to that stuff too. So the thing that made me think a lot about this, or the thing that this all made me think a lot about, is that when I was a kid and I saw this movie, I was a kid. And so I only read it all as text. Like I didn't know that they were referring to anything like I didn't know that this was a reference to a format of how people consumed media in the 30s and 40s like I just read this as like this was a cool idea that these guys had all by themselves (laughs) totally and so if there was any self-referential commentary or commentary about the format or commentary about themselves or commentary about serials or the accidental reveals of you know people acting sort of in the name of empire acting in the ways that they did like I didn't know any of I just read it as text. And so it makes me think a lot about what the responsibilities of people are who are referencing things, Mm. sending it out to an audience to children who are not going to have any context for it, Mm. which is a conversation we've obviously had a much more nuanced. Well, we've had a conversation or a series of nuanced conversations about that in the past 10 years. Plus, obviously, it's been going on in academia for much longer. But like if this movie were made and presented now, what do you think their hurdles would be? <laughs> well, Marion would have been probably uh, at least 16 when Indiana seduced her. Yeah, for like, sure. I think that this is a case of adult men who just didn't think it through all the way. So if we meet, remade it today, yeah, I don't think a lot would change in this movie. It, we would age up Marion and that would probably be about it. You'd still have all the colonial issues. 
I, I just quickly before because the colonial issues is a, is a whole other thing that is complicated also by there being Nazis. So it's like right. both sides are acting bad, but one is Nazis. So it's like, you know, and I'm not a both sides are politically, but we'll talk about that later. Both sides, Alex Steed. We all know that about him. Yeah. Or we're like, you can see a situation where Indiana having not a lot of common sense mm-hmm. would see a 15 year old who has a crush on him and is like, well, this is acceptable. And this is what people are doing back now. Yeah, 15 in the 1920s, like, that's that's a workable... That's America age, yeah. Yeah, she's, you know, God, you don't want her to get to, like, 24. At that point, she can't even be fertile. Well, she'll probably be dead. <laughs> yeah, to Sarah's point, when they tried to put her in the black market later, it's funny because they're like, here's just, like, a woman. She's like, a reg- we got a... She's, like, 27, maybe, which is on the black yeah. market now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's based on the, the current prevalent theory among, like, Facebook moms who go to Walmart and freak out when they're in the same aisle as a black person twice. It's like, you know what the human trafficking bazaars want? They want 35 year old moms and Lululemon. Mm -hmm. That's what everyone wants at the dino market. And weird dinosaur hybrids, as we learned (laughs) in uh, Jurassic World Dominion. So moving to the colonials. (laughs) Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. I will say with the whole like the trafficking thing, watching it again, this was the first time where I definitely galaxy brained that moment where the Nazi calls the ship owner a savage. And I was like, oh, he's not saying it. He's like, savage, you he he calls him a savage and says, you know, you dare to make demands. And I realized that the actual read of the line is that the Nazis don't have a problem with the human trafficking. Oh, of course not. Yeah. They're, They're not calling him a savage for that. They're just like, oh, black man, you would make a demand of us. And that's where they're drawing the line. Right. They're, they're yeah. not insulted that he wants to, he's trying to negotiate to keep Marion for human trafficking purposes. He sees no problem with that. He just does, like the Nazi just has a problem that a black guy is asking to negotiate. It would be really rich if he did have a problem with it because they just chucked her in a tomb not 24 hours ago. They're like, let's do the Aida. <laughs> <laughs> to this point, like this is another one of the things that I think about, about like only having read this as text when I was a mm-hmm. kid is like, you know, Indiana Jones representing the United States in like academia and all that's good and whatever as it's presented in the movie versus the Nazis who are obviously bad trying to do the bad thing or whatever. Like again, Again, like I don't know as a child that this is echoing a format that existed at a particular time and like that's kind of like what's happening or whatever. I just assume it's the 80s. America, fuck yeah. Indiana Jones is like a perfect example of that. So yeah, I guess like these are, again, these are all the things I'm seeing now with sober adult eyes is that uh, Indy is the hero in context, but when you're up against Nazis, it's not hard to look like a hero in context. And also to Sarah's point that you made last night, still baffled by the fact that that generations of people ended up watching and loving this movie and this was their hero and now we're having a Nazi resurgence in the United States or a larger coming out party than normal. Well, yeah, and just how so much we've had so much conversation in the past five-ish years about like punching Nazis and like, is it okay to punch a Nazi? Like that was a question people had and it's like, this question has been answered. I mean, it, it, we know that it is like one of the most fun things on earth to punch Nazis. This movie demonstrates that. Well, I think that what this movie kind of it really helps to, to draw into focus is that the problem that most people had, I think, with Nazis isn't so much that they were Nazis. I think most mm-hmm. Americans, or at least the Americans who now are like, well, let's not go so far. The problem was that they were Germans. Yeah. God. Yeah. That's a really great point that's never occurred to me. But of course, that's true. Oh, my Christ. 
Can you say a couple more things about that, Amanda? I think that genuinely, like, watching it now, yeah, that's when you when you have people being like, well, you know, how, how did we fight Nazis in the 1940s? It's like, well, because we were fighting Germany. We weren't fighting the Nazis. I mean, I, mm. I personally would have been fighting the Nazis because I'm Jewish and that would not have worked out well for me. But uh, the people who now are like, you know, marching in the streets and quoting Hitler, mm. this is now an abstraction for them where it's like this, well, he was a, a thinker. Not that it's, well, this was the German threat. And hmm. that's really what it comes down to is that, yeah. yes, we should theoretically know you're supposed to punch Nazis. But I think that the lesson most Americans who now are, you know, to the right, they just were like, well, you're supposed to punch Germans. And those are that is those are two distinct things. Yeah. And this movie loved punching anyone who wasn't an American. Period, yeah. So. And, that's, and that's the thing with this, you know, this movie, the colonialism of it starts from the premise of no matter what a white guy is going to end up with this. So do you want it in the hands of the good guys, a.k.a. America, or do you want yeah. it in the hands of the bad guys, a.k.a. the Nazis? And because this is a movie made by Steven Spielberg, who is very heavily influenced by the, you know, the repercussions of the Holocaust, he's. The ne- he's the generate that my parents' generation, so it's kids who grew up knowing survivors. Mm-hmm. For him, this is a movie about explicitly punching Nazis. Totally, which is so cool. Yeah, there is nothing about this. This is not a movie. This never t- sets foot in Germany. There is no present. Like Hitler is a concept, but it's the individual people who believe this ideology that are the monsters in this. That's really what it comes down to. Is more the thought of like it wasn't their ideology that was the problem. It was the country, and I don't think like I think that we. That's where kind of we've gone. I think it's also really interesting to think about how, in my opinion, the the way that, you know, we teach World War II in American history has become like, and then Hitler was committing genocide mm-hmm. and we did not like that. And we went in and we saved everybody. And that's why we're the most powerful country in the world now. And really, it's like. You know, like there was like to some extent. Yeah. But the fact that we, you know, didn't get involved until after Pearl Harbor and the fact that, you know, where'd Hitler get the idea? Yeah. Where where did he? Someone could have made a podcast about that. With special <laughs> guest Eric Garcia. For my Andrew Jackson fan podcast. <laughs> I think that you're right about the way that we teach World War II history. Yes, you're right. That we like very much kind of make it sound like America was stepping in to do the right thing versus America was stepping in because we suddenly realized it was an existential threat to our existence. And I think that a lot of the time what gets lost and what gets flattened is that we fought them for those tangible reasons. But from an ethical and from an ideological standpoint, independent of if World War II happened, like if you remove World War II from this entirely, on a fundamental level, the basic concepts of Nazism as a ideology should be reprehensible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because we conflate Nazism as a thing that happened as part of okay. this war, it becomes very much focused and kind of localized and then does, of course, become conflated okay. with the idea of, like, well, it was the Germans who came up with all of it versus saying this is something that should be reprehensible to humans and has existed through time and stretches back mm-hmm. further and bigger than just the existence of the Jews or anti-Semitism. This is a, a larger ideology that we should not accept. Mm-hmm. And I think that Indiana Jones does that to a degree. Mm. I mean, it does that for sure. But then it's like, how does that get used? Right? Like, I think over time, 
part also of the issue of having a bunch of like young budding Nazis who appear to have missed this chapter in the the history book. It's not in fact missing a chapter in the history book. It's after almost a hundred years of saying like, but hey, we're not Nazis. Mm -hmm. Hey, we defeated the Nazis one time, really erased the history leading up to the Nazis and excused everything after the Nazis. Like, and so after a long enough time, like, I think you're right. Like there absolutely needs to be all of these sort of like aesthetic and artistic homages to like explaining and reiterating that this is like morally and ethically decidedly bad. But an issue that came out of that is like by that being a prominent piece of like particularly like American pop culture, it often became a abstraction killer around saying like, but like guys, the things that we're doing feel... Uh, it seems like we're killing a lot of democratically elected leaders. Like, what's going on there? Alex, we got to fight communism. It seems like there was a lot of slavery and ge- genocide to kick things off. What's going like? It feels like that there was a big hall pass. Yes. On rightfully using <laughs> the accomplishments in the Second World War to justify a lot of other shit. Well, I have one question for you, Alex. Yes, Did please. we do those things with an accent? <laughs> <laughs> While wearing a kicky little outfit. We did things. What's it called? The mid-continental accident, accent. Yeah. We did things with that the one. The mid-continental <laughs> accident. And then, okay, this whole conversation we're having about Nazis is reminding me of the research I'm doing on serial killers. And I'm going to read you a quote from this. Like, if there's like a white guy who's written a book in the 80s or 90s that's just like serial killers, here's what I think about them. <laughs> it's going to be insane. And he's going to tell on himself in a lot of alarming ways very quickly. So this is Hunting Humans, The Rise of the Multiple Murderer by Elliot Layton. So he's like going through this thing where he's like, here's all the people I'm not talking about. And so he writes, the point should be clear. These are different and almost unrelated phenomena. The multiple murderer who sacrifices his own life to make an art form out of killing strangers is qualitatively a very different man from the slum husband who, driven beyond endurance by poverty and humiliation, beats his wife or neighbor to death in some drunken brawl. And it's like, well, it is the same to the person who gets murdered. So, Sarah, how dare you question the artist? That's fucking wild. You can't expect a simple poor man to understand that killing is wrong, but you can, <laughs> you know, he, just because of the circumstances of his existence. But you can't expect a special man to understand that killing is fun. <laughs> <laughs> and in art, and you got to make a lot of sacrifice to get away with it. Literally, yeah. But yeah, I think that serial killers have the same function for us as as Nazis on a different scale, which is like, if I'm a shitty husband... Or if I'm a man who's like looking at the statistics about like, you know, how many pregnant women are murdered by their partners, I'm just like, well, yeah, but like none of us are serial killers. So like until I'm like seeing murder as an art form, (laughs) then like we're fine. We're good. And it's like we're not good. It's like manifestly clear that we're not good. We can't just keep pointing at serial killers. And yeah, what you're saying feels exactly the same, but on like a geopolitical scale. Yeah, well, it's the whole like, you know, at least he's not an axe murderer. It's like, well, can there be a little shade of gray between (laughs) in the scale of like human behavior here? Because at least he's not an axe murderer doesn't preclude him from still being pretty awful. 
he could murder with something more boring, yeah. like a frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that you can't trust a French guy from watching this movie. That's for sure. There's only mm-hmm. one. The representation for France, not great. He's kind of doing a French accent. I honestly think he's only hitting it 20% of the time. <laughs> he's not really Egyptian. Is he Egyptian in the movie? Oh, so, so, the- I think in the movie he is. Yeah. yeah. Well, so he is in brown face, which not great. But he is trustworthy. I am interested in like what this movie thinks it's saying about like who you can trust. He's trustworthy because he's played by the guy who played Gimli. That's what I think. Yeah. And the trustworthy friend, our trustworthy friend from Egypt, who has many children who end up saving Indiana Jones in a bar at some point, kind of inexplicably, is rewarded with a mouth kiss by Marion. Yeah. After she name checks his wife. It's an interesting moment. It's a it is move. a moment for sure. Marion does not give a shit about anything. Including consent. Yeah. This is like, again, this was my introduction to the world, this movie. Like, this is how the world yeah, works. Many of us, this introduction. When did fedoras, this is an interesting thing, because like, okay, when I was growing up, I was like, fedoras are very cool. Debbie Gibson has a fedora. Indiana Jones has a fedora. Like when I grew up, I will wear Mm -hmm. fedoras, obviously. I was a big Swing Kids fan. Everyone who I thought was cool had a fedora. And then also I loved Newsies, so you have Newsboy hats. And then at a certain point, like I think Newsboy hats are safe. I think they're like the official hat of like helpful lesbians. (laughs) But fedoras at some point, like, became the official hat of, like, MRA vloggers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why did that? Why? Why? (laughs) Well, it happens about 20 years after Indiana Jones comes out and all the boys who were somewhere between the ages of five to ten who watched Indiana Jones and were like, oh, so that's what cool dudes who don't give a shit about women do. And so they all took all the wrong lessons from Indiana Jones and decided that the hat is the key. And so it's like by the early 2000s, once all those guys have reached maturation and have disposable income, they're now all wearing stupid fucking hats. They are all wearing stupid hats. They're wearing hats to the grocery store versus Indiana Jones is wearing his cool hat on awesome adventures. And that's the distinction. (laughs) Because you don't wear your hat indoors, right? As a man of the the time 30s or whatever. Yeah. No, that's just that's just rude. If if people can't see the top of your head, you could be hiding anything. Well, but getting back to the Sala problem, like this, let's dig into this. Thank yeah, you. Because something I really noticed watching this as well, we have Sala played by, is it Jonathan Rice Davies? Yeah. Reese Rice, who's a wonderful actor and who should not be playing this part. You know, and my guess is that like 1981, like we're still squarely in a time where it's like, who's going to play, you know, the lead in The King and I set in present day Thailand, Yul Brenner. Yeah. Because I didn't grow up thinking of this as like something weird or like nobody ever pointed it out to me or I never really like noticed it. And then I realized when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, I was like, oh, Gimli is Sala. So like, that's strange. That's thought provoking. And then, you know, your thoughts are provoked as many people's were in the 2000s to our great benefit. But what I also noticed on top of that is that like we have Sala and he's our helpful character. And then we have other characters who I don't really know the details of the actors who they're played by who like have little parts. And then just like everybody else is just like a giant crowd of extras, like to the point where when we're having this big, exciting Nazi chase with like the horse and the Jeep, like we're just like 
driving through like these diggers and these Egyptian workers who are like trying to work on this giant site. And it's like, they're so uninteresting to the movie that like, it doesn't even register whether they like die or anything. It's the camera doesn't follow them at all. It's just like, yeah, they just, you just drive through them like a pane of glass in a car chase. Right. Mm -hmm. Which feels even weirder to me, actually. And just like Indiana Jones, like kills some people, like he kill, like kills mm-hmm. them in the street. He kills like eighty people, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you said this in passing, but I want to unpack what I think you were saying. Is mm-hmm. when we talked about the use of brown, yellow, and blackface in Charlie's Angels, like the mm-hmm. insensitivity that occurs there is like those characters in the movie are doing that, knowing they're doing it in the movie, and then what is happening twenty years before that mm-hmm. in this movie is like no i'm not gonna say it's like more or less egregious but it's egregious on this whole other level which is in an 80s way <laughs> well it, it's egregious in the level where it's like for a long time and we're still not far we're still talking about james franco playing fidel castro i guess like this is obviously yeah. still happening but also why is james franco playing anyone in a movie but anyway. fabulous and important <laughs> question the structure sort of like what brown and yellow face and blackface like in hollywood at this time was that there were like 15 lead actors there were 20 secondary or character actors. And one of them was John Ratzenberger. Yeah, one of them was John Ratzenberger. 90% of all of the above were white. 10% of the secondary character actors were black. And you could play any person of color as long as it was a secondary character. But if it was a primary character, there was a strong choice in order to quote draw, they were going to put like a white person in the role as the person of color right? and make them whatever sort of background they the character is supposed Which to be. Natalie would as like a Russian person with like dark hair and very fair skin played mm-hmm. like every ethnic role of the time. Right, 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 right. So yeah. like that's what's happening operationally, which is like on top of every other kind of like racist thing that's occurring. It's a studio going like, well, we really need people to come to the movie and we really want white people to come to the movie. So how are we going <sighs> to do that? We got 10 primary actors. We can make one of them black this time. And I curious about just all the reasons because i think you're right from my understanding of just like who i see in movies from this period and then my question is like what is the like insider breakdown of how all that happened because there has to be some calculus of like we don't want to alienate the white dollar at the theater sarah we're we're going to so we're sarah and i are going to go spend a week in la which i'm very excited about we're about to leave Mm -hmm. we're about to leave in an hour and a half and one of the things that i saw the last time i was there was at the academy museum which i'd never seen before is they have the catalogs of various Mm -hmm. actors that you could get on loan from studios Mm -hmm. it's it's like white lead they don't say white leads obviously but it's like leads and it's the actresses and then it's like secondary and then it's like negroes like they have kind of the breakdown of the different kind of actors Mm -hmm. to play the different kind of characters that you might ultimately need so this is like this goes to the origin i mean like this is how they were selecting actors in like a literal yeah. catalog of that yeah. time. Like very deliberately with their little books. Well, and that reminds me of there's a moment in my favorite movie, Los Angeles Plays Itself, yeah, where they talk about, I forget what movie this was. It was something shot in, I believe, the 50s, maybe the late 40s at someplace like Dodger Stadium. And it talks about how you couldn't have professionally hired extras and film a scene where that showed people intermingling in a desegregated fashion. Mm. So it was only because they shot this scene like with actual sports fans, like walking out of the stadium and into the parking lot that like this movie shows 
black and white Angelinos interacting with each other because you just you weren't allowed to show that because it was immoral. Right. It was a bad influence on the impressionable minds of America. Because, like, I don't know what the internal conversations in the studios are like today. I'm sure they're like at least 80 percent as overtly evil as they ever were. I think it's all an algorithm. So no one is even talking. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I guess the, yeah. the Hal is on it. But like working your way back to a time, because I think now like people at least tend to pay lip service to the idea of like, we are launching an initiative and we are checking in and we are have we have pilot programs and we're going to do some shit. And hopefully you're going to forget we said any of this in like six weeks and you won't bother us about it. Or you get the like, leave us alone. Don't bother us like choices like in our favorite show and just like that. Or how many times can I apologize? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but just like working back to a time when like the strategy was just like, yeah, we've never heard the term racial justice. We think it's very dangerous for white people to interact with anybody else. And that's our belief. And nobody's challenging us on that, or at least not that we care about. And that's how we're going to make movies. And like, it feels like it is still out of this world that, you know, an early 80s big budget adventure movie is is made from. Yeah, I agree with that. I also don't think that I don't think there would have even been the like, well, we got to have a white guy playing. I don't think that would have right. been a thought. Definitely not. <laughs> because like it never occurred to them to have anyone else do the role. They just like, that's the thought they didn't have. Yeah, yeah I think the, I think it was more it never occurred to them that there was anything wrong with having a white guy playing. For sure. That's mm -hmm. that's where the blind spot is less so than, oh, well, we can't have a, you know, a, an actual like an Egyptian guy play an Egyptian guy. It was truly just, well, but, you know, we're going to get the best guy for the part. And there was no thought process to is the best guy. Why is the best guy always the white guy that you happen to already be friends with? Right. And there was no question about the fact that, like, the structure to that moment never allowed in an Egyptian guy. Like, that's like part of. Yeah, totally. Because you're not examining the deeper structural reasons for why you would think he is the best guy for the part. But it mm. is very much the 80s to just kind of be like, you know, right. Which I don't even know what, what his background is, but I assume you would be like, you know, he's great. He's got like a Shakespeare background. And it's like, yeah, yeah there's like a ton of Egyptian guys who can like be all whatever he's doing. They can do that. But it's just, yeah. I think it also is something just endemic to people in L.A. Um, that are white people in L.A. specifically, maybe. But if you're not a blonde, <laughs> you suddenly fall into this category of being sort of ethnically ambiguous. Exotic. Yeah. I'm not an exotic looking person. I have in LA only been asked if I am at no fewer than five different ethnicities. I'm a white Jew. LA is more like Minnesota than I realized. <laughs> yeah, it's strange because I hear there are Jews in Los Angeles. There's quite a few of us. I've heard of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this also gets to something really interesting, which I think there was just an article about this talking about Mrs. Maisel, which was very gratifying to me, where mm. like Jews are still not played right. by Jews. I mean, sometimes no. that happens, but often I feel like you'll have a Jewish character played by someone who's like incredibly not Jewish. You mean like having a British woman play Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Like, I do mean that. Yeah. <laughs> because I think that is important, you know, to not have my history and my experiences be washed over with someone who has, who reads to a larger audience as Christian mm -hmm. um, or Anglo in some way, because there is a distinction um, and it does speak to what we find attractive. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The compliment I always get from guys is the word. It's not a compliment, but it's you don't look Jewish. Oof. <laughs> it's because they can't see your horns because of your hair. Right. Well, that's the thing. I'm like, uh, do I not look like a Nazi yeah. cartoon? Is that what you're telling me? Because I appreciate that. But it is also important to put into context that <laughs> despite despite Hollywood being sort of naysayed by many in the white supremacy racket as sort of like nefariously run by the Jews, Los Angeles was a white supremacist creation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like on every on every single front. So I guess it is not surprising that you have people walking around still saying these things. These Nazis are just so picky, you know. <laughs> Look, love me, love my horns, you know? (laughs) So I do want to ask, as a Jew, how do you feel about this movie where Nazis melt at the end? Fucking love it. (laughs) Not in the concept of, obviously, I cared about the Holocaust, but there was very much, there was never a, I enjoy taking in World War II media. And maybe that's partly because, like, it seems as if any time that the History Channel was on, it was something about World War II. And I was like, come on, guys, can we move? Can we do something cool? Can we talk about, like, the pyramids or something mildly more interesting than U-boats? <laughs> but starting in 2017, I started writing these little stupid tweets of fan fiction that became microfiction that I turned into an illustrated book mm. about a baseball player who played for the Dodgers named Chase Utley. Uh, he had previously been on the Phillies. He came to the Dodgers. The things to know about Chase Utley are that he prematurely grades, so his nickname was the Silver Fox. And his whole thing was basically, he was one of those like old school, put your head down, baseball players, knows the game better than anyone else, but also has the highest threshold for pain. Because one of the things he was very notable for was that he would, if a baseball was coming at him when he was in the batter's box, he would not move and he would take the hit by pitch so he could get on base. Wait, is that how baseball works? <laughs> Not normally. Normally you move out of the way so you don't get hit by the pitch. Right. He famously was quoted when someone asked him about his very high hit by pitch record. He was, Someone was like, do you like getting hit by pitches? And his response was, do I like it? Well, I don't dislike it. <laughs> <laughs> and coming out of that, for some reason, my brain immediately was like, well, Chase Utley fought in World War II. Yes. And he fought Nazis and was one of the most deadly Nazi hunters in World War II. And of that course. is why he has such a high threshold for pain. Love it. So I started writing these like little microfiction tweets about Chase Utley talking about killing Nazis in World War II. And it started as a joke. And then it became this very like comforting and sort of security blanket thing for me where it became a way to kind of work through what was happening in 2017, 2018 where Charlottesville happens and we start to see this rise, whereas anti-Semitism had been a thing that we all kind of at least winked and nudged, just like, well, we don't like that. We'll do, we'll, we'll have our stereotypes about Jews, but we won't actively say they're trying to replace us and we don't want that. Yeah, we'll just talk about Soros a lot. Yeah. The way that I dealt with the anxiety of it, which dealing with that very visceral anxiety for me became this fantasy of like a guy who runs around punching Nazis and killing Nazis. And so because of that, Indiana Jones has now become a comfort movie for me, even though it wasn't, and even though I came to it super late, because it is a satisfying movie where I get to just watch Harrison Ford deck Nazis. Totally. 
Well, there's also an argument. It's not an argument, but like there's, I guess, a thing that a lot of people bring up when you talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I've never experienced, but I experienced a lot when I Googled it for 20 minutes before we talked, is uh, <laughs> a lot of people bring up the fact that like any of Indiana Jones actions in this movie don't matter. Like if he were yeah. not in the movie, all of the same stuff would have ultimately happened. Oh, that has That's never true. occurred to me. No, but it wouldn't be the same because I wouldn't have a great time for two hours. So it's different. I mean, to that, I love that. <laughs> Because, like, that's a great lesson for a lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> Audit your actual impact. There's a strong chance you're not doing a positive thing. He's like Carrie Strug in Atlanta. <laughs> wow, that's great. The movie itself is not about Indiana Jones finding the Ark. The Ark, that is the, that is the MacGuffin through the whole thing. The story is hmm. Indiana Jones realizing that what is more important is his relationship to this person. Right. Just give me the girl. Yeah. And it's not necessarily even like his relationship to that. He, he needs to open his heart to love or anything like that. It's specifically that he has to, as a person, realize he needs to value the people over the item. Hmm. And it, that's why the big moment is the standoff where he's threatening to blow up the ark. Mm -hmm. Right. So final question. Like, what was their plan? Like, they're like, OK, we're going to like have this ceremony and talk to god and then like what like what do you think their agenda was just to like get be like hey god we know that you're going to be into what we're doing can you like do us a solid and help us wipe out your chosen people like what was their idea to that point sarah we know that balak 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 has a um Baloch. has Bosch, that's such a good point because like the Nazis have an agenda, but he also reveals at some point that he's like, when they finally get their hands on it, I'm going to be talking to God. So he has his own separate agenda with God talking. Like, right. I don't want to talk to God. No. Like, what am I going to say? Terrible conversationalist, famously. <laughs> he's always asking you to do stuff. Do you have a sense of what the plan is, Amanda? <laughs> um, I think the plan is just sort of the amorphous and then power. Sure. So I guess, you know, I am sure it's sort of that kind of, well, and then I will just have the power and be the authority and be indispensable and get riches, which as we all know, God mm. loves people who want those things. <laughs> we haven't even talked about the whole fact that like Indy's thesis is it belongs in a museum and there's been mm -hmm. a centuries worth of important conversations about that. Although fortunately he does not say that in this film. Yes, 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 right. yes. But he he doesn't say that in this film, but that's his drive. He says some version of that while talking to the government guys. He says, like, ultimately it's going to end up in a museum. Like, he needs this to end up in a museum. When does he say that? Is that Crusade? He said it in Crusade specifically about the cross. Cross that of Coronado. So actually, yeah. we maybe we first hear River Phoenix say it. Yes. Any hoosies. Um, we know... That Indiana Jones's father is Sean Connery. Yes. <laughs> and we know that Marion's dad is Indy's uh, mentor. Who, in your view, Sarah, why don't mm -hmm. you kick us off? Who, in your view, is the daddy? Hmm. It's that lone male student in Indy's lecture who, like, leaves an apple on his desk and then bolts. <laughs> no, I love, I love, that's such a funny bit. He seems shy about what he's doing, but he's still doing it. Yep. That woman wrote love you on her eyes. I just have an apple and I'm a guy. I would much prefer the apple. An apple is very refreshing. I'm assuming she asked her roommate to help her because doing that in reverse in a mirror would be incredibly difficult. This is a great point. And her roommate was like, this is going to work. 
Because she knows she has a crush. She's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, are you sure? Oh, my God. Uh, Amanda. I think the daddy is, is problematic Sala. You know? Great. Yeah, for he sure. He is the ally. He is comforting. He provides them the only safe harbor they have in this entire movie. Yeah. Um, he has a legion of children at his disposal should you need to be protected from being shot by nazis oh my god always and then also gets the great moment of bad dates yes oh that poor monkey bad date no 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 you can't say poor monkey because that monkey is a literal nazi in this film it's even spielberg has the nazi salute he has the monkey do a nazi salute and say in a monkey voice hail hitler absolutely not the zero tolerance position is nice and that it makes it all less sad. Like imagine a little monkey, imagine a little monkey with its MAGA hat and its heavy <gasps> denim button up shirt, you know, Ugh, little monkey storming the Capitol. Is- <laughs> <laughs> Zip ties. <laughs> I do think like if you're going to have to kill a monkey in a movie, the only way that I'm not going to feel a little sad about it is if you full on make the monkey a Nazi. And I appreciate totally even then his little monkey body. I was like, oh, yeah. but he was a Nazi. You're right. He was a Nazi. And like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but you punch if we, it's OK to punch Nazis. It's OK to not be sad when a monkey Nazi eats gates. <laughs> and to your point about Sala being the being the daddy again, we talked about the brown face piece for sure. That's all important to consider but um for a movie made in reagan's 80s this egyptian comes out looking good yeah yeah he's a lovely honorable family man who never double crosses anybody which like if i hadn't seen this a million times not like alfred molina (laughs) (laughs) they in their 80s way tried totally (laughs) just like all our 80s dads you just look back and you're like well you tried. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Mine is, I mean, it's, I feel like it's so, it's, it's obvious and low hanging, but yeah, mine is very Marion. I love her a lot. She's much more of a complicated character than I remember her being in a really lovely way. It's just like a delight at all times to see her face. And yeah, to your point, like she finds herself in many situations, but is not like undone by those situations and lets her undoing sort of be its own thing. She's a great negotiator. She realizes that Indy's looking for something is trying to leverage up to anyone who will take the offer. I love Marion. I think she's an excellent character. Yeah, that's it. That's who my daddy is. It's Marion. I would let Marion be my daddy. Fair. Oh, yeah. Amanda, this is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. And, you know, this was really fun. I am thrilled that we were able to make this work. Amen. If you get the opportunity for Sarah and me and God, melt a Nazi. I'll make sure that if I see one, I punch him. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned. <laughs> All right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Of course, thank you to Amanda Smith for being on this episode, talking about all this with us. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lash for providing the beats. Thank you for listening. Find us on Patreon. Find us on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Find us on Twitter. Find us on YouTube. Uh, you Are Good Pod for those last two. And uh, yeah, we're going to take next week off. It, we just have to. It's the end of the summer and uh, we need to catch up on recordings. So just know that there's no show next week. There will be one the week that follows in the first week of the first full week of September, I should say. Yeah, we appreciate you. Thanks for everything you do. Look out for the bonus episode on grief coming out soon. And that's it. Y'all are good. Thanks for being here.